Welcome to the third episode of InPress, a podcast that showcases early career research from any area of STEM. I'm Emma Cooper. Last time we spoke to Dr Kate Merritt about her work investigating the role of glutamate in the brain and schizophrenia. This week we delve into some pretty hardcore physics as I talk to Dr Paul Scoville about his work hunting for dark matter. He currently works at the University of Oxford, but has previously worked at UCLA as a postdoc and completed his PhD at the University of Edinburgh. Paul had a lot to say about dark matter. In fact, he had so much to say that we've decided to do a two-part special. In part one, we will discover what dark matter is and the evidence that Paul thinks demonstrates that dark matter really is out there. In part two, Paul will discuss how scientists are actually searching for dark matter and he'll give us some more details on the work that he does. Hello, thank you very much for talking to me today. So, dark matter, can you tell us a little bit about what that actually is? With dark matter, if you think about all the things that you can see around you in your sort of normal sphere of experience, and up in the sky you can see stars, you can see planets, and if you look far enough you can see galaxies. The problem is there's a whole raft of evidence to suggest that what we can see only really makes up about 4% of the mass energy budget of the universe. Wow, 4%. Yeah, 4%. Amazing. <laughs> so this dark matter, this mystical thing that isn't luminous, you know, we can't see it, really has a huge effect on the way the universe has, has evolved, formation of structure, the way galaxies rotate, the way galaxies move around each other in clusters, the way we move around the centre of our own galaxy even is, is influenced by dark matter. One thing that we will talk about later probably is the potential particle nature of dark matter. So it doesn't only affect us on the larger scales, it can affect on the smaller scales as well. So right down at the particle physics level, there are a few problems that, that, that can be solved by the presence of a specific kind of dark matter and the type, kind of dark matter that we're going to talk about as well. So is it like, is it a particle that we just can't see or is do we know what it is or do we just know that it's there okay so yeah. we we don't know that it's a particle there is a large amount of evidence suggested it does come in the form of a particle but there are also competing theories or other other things that could could form the dark matter one thing that's quite interesting is black holes so supermassive black holes at the center of a galaxy that are produced when a star collapses at the end of its uh, end of its life cycle so these large stars they'll collapse down to form neutron stars and, and there's Pauli's exclusion principle that basically says no two things can be in the same place, in the same space. And as it gets more and more dense, that principle's overcome and it collapses down into a black hole. But in addition to that, in the very early universe, imagine the Big Bang in reverse. You go from, from what we have now, you're in kind of a fairly over-dense part of, part of the universe. But I think in the, in the general universe, there's only something like five atoms per metre squared. Uh, in general, and the temperature's down at a few Kelvin on average. But if you go back in time, the universe, well, would be compressing and compressing and compressing down to the very early universe where it's very dense. And there's a theory that within this time period, primordial black holes could have formed that would have the gravitational energy needed to, to sort of form structures within the universe, which, other than that, you would need something like particle dark matter to explain. So these primordial black holes causing small changes in, in density in the early universe to make all of this around us appear. So there are there are alternatives to the particle dark matter, but my career so far has been looking for the for the particle side. Unfortunately, the primordial black holes they'd still be around, 
um, but they would be very, very difficult to uh, detect. Can you explain how we know it exists? Okay, yes, I can, I can. So there are three really key pieces of evidence for the formation of dark matter. Now, the first was probably the initial discovery of the effects of something like a dark matter by Fritz Wicke, and he was looking at a cluster called the Coma Cluster, which is a cluster of galaxies, and he was looking at the, the ways in which the galaxies were moving around each other. And he could use something called Virial Theorem, which is a, a theory that links the amount of visible matter in a body to, the mass, to its mass. So he knew about the motions of the galaxies, he could calculate their mass through Virial Theorem, but the two didn't match together. You couldn't explain the motion of the galaxies based on just that mass. So what he suggested that there was something called Dunkel materi, so dark matter, that was the first use of dark matter, something that he couldn't observe that was adding the extra gravity needed to explain the motions of the galaxies. Now the second piece of evidence was from, was from Vera Rubin, who was uh, studying the rotation curves of galaxies. In our solar system, we have all our planets all orbiting around the sun and you can use basic mechanics to calculate the rotational velocity of each planet as you get further away from the sun and the rule that they follow is that if you double the distance the speed quarters and if you do it for all the planets or any any bodies orbiting our sun but it just follows that distribution beautifully so as you get further away the velocity drops now vera rubin was looking at these galaxy rotation curves and she found that rather than dropping off as it should the velocity as you get further out it was level it was flat all the way out to the edge of the galaxy and what that tended to suggest was that you can calculate an equation to describe the falling off of the of the rotational velocity and it depends on r and the mass of the central body and the only dependence in that equation is on r because the mass of the central body just stays the same it's the sun the only way to counteract that fall off as you go out in radius is to increase the mass as you increase the radius and that means that there's more mass within each orbit so as you're moving away from the center of the galaxy your, your mass isn't concentrated at the center it's spread across the whole sphere of the galaxy and beyond as you move further away from the center of the galaxy the rotation state the rotational velocity stays the same okay that suggests that there's some extra mass that we can't see that matter would be a nice explanation for that so the primordial black holes that we talked about before wouldn't explain that. So yours is the dominant theory because there's more evidence to suggest that yours is correct. Yes. Here, Paul started to explain another theory that supports the existence of dark matter, but it soon became clear he needed a whiteboard and lots of hand gestures. So if you want to know more, read his blog, which has more details. So I've read a few of your articles, and in them you talk about WIMPs, or W-I-M-Ps. So what are these? Okay. Weakly interacting massive particles. Um, so yeah, that's another thing for the evidence for dark matter. Earlier on, I, I mentioned that dark matter and, and WIMPs as dark matter, or particle, can, can influence things on the, on the larger scale and on the smaller scale in particle physics. We have what's known as the standard model of particle physics, and there's some things that you might be familiar with in there. So there's quarks, there's neutrinos. Neutrinos have been in the news quite recently with the, the uh, most recent Nobel Prize. There's the Higgs boson, that makes up part of the standard model. The photon and the gluon, so the things that, there are four fundamental forces. There's the strong interaction which holds the nuclei together, the electromagnetic interaction which holds atom, atoms together, the gravitational interaction which is the apple dropping from the tree, and the weak interaction which is involved in some um, kinds of radioactive decay, like beta decay, is a weak interaction. There is a theory that suggests that 
as well as that standard model, there's a supersymmetrical model, which is that every particle has a supersymmetric partner. And that's something that's being searched for at the moment uh, at CERN. So each of these standard model particles has their own supersymmetrical partner. The theory states that they must be massive, so much larger than the standard model cousins. And they're, they're not very interestingly named. So if you have a quark, you add an X to the start of it. So there's, a, a, there's up and down quarks, and they become sup and stown. <laughs> so, and then you have the things like photons become photinos, Higgs become Higginos. Um, but one thing that we know about in, in particle physics is that large things tend to decay. So all these, these supersymmetrical partners are, are very large. In the very early universe, they decay down to what we would call the lightest supersymmetrical partner. partner and that's all that's left. All that does is just float around, and that is the, a, a good candidate for, for dark matter. This would be something that would only interact very weakly. It wouldn't be visible by normal standards, which is something that we want in dark matter because we can't observe it in the, in the galaxy, but we can see its gravitational influence. We move to yet another piece of evidence for dark matter, a phenomenon called the cosmic microwave background. I'm not sure about you, but I'm already sold. Which is essentially the point in the universe's evolution. Um, it's about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, where the universe cooled to the extent that um, photons stopped scattering off the material in the universe. It's hard to comprehend this because we see photons scattering off things all the time. Photons from the sun, photons from light, scattering off things and back into our eyes. But the average photon that was around 380,000 years after the Big Bang has never interacted with anything since. We do see those photons. If you imagine a, a telescope is kind of a time machine, and the further and further away you look, the further back in time you're looking because the light travels at a finite speed. And what you do find is this faint glow of these photons scattering for the very last time. And this was discovered by Penzias and Wilson, I think back in the 60s. Um, they had a telescope, a radio telescope, and they were looking at some closer-to-Earth objects. They turned their telescope on, and all they could hear was a, was a hum. So they checked their electronics. They even went so far as to evict a couple of pigeons that had nested in there and clean out all their droppings, just in case it was radioactive and that was what was causing this background. And it just, it just persisted. So it wasn't radioactive pigeons. Uh, at the same time, um, somewhere else in the US, there were another group of people desperately trying to build a radio telescope to look for exactly this cosmic microwave background, this, this remnant of the Big Bang, this moment of last scatter. And Penzias and Wilson, by complete accident, scooped them, won the Nobel Prize for it. So going back to why that's evidence for dark matter is, on average, if you look up in the universe and you make measurements, the universe is a perfect black body emitter, so it's perfectly isotropic, everything's very smooth. We're not in a, in a particularly interesting place. Everywhere we look, it looks the same. And if we were anywhere else in the universe looking up at the sky, we'd see exactly the same picture on average. When I say a black body emitter, if you, if you imagine a black body absorber is something that absorbs all, ra all frequencies of electromagnetic radiation in a specific way. A black body emitter is something that emits all frequencies of radiation in a specific way. And the universe is the most perfect black body emitter. But there's a, a number of, of satellite-based experiments that have looked up at the cosmic microwave background. And if you look at the sort of smaller scale, what you see in this cosmic microwave background is slight changes, less than 1% changes in, in, the, in the temperature of the universe. The regions where you see these changes in temperatures correspond to regions of ever so slight overdensity and ever so slight underdensity. And it's those regions which is where structures started to form. So you'd start with 
a few atoms falling in and then you'd have stars and then clusters of stars and then galaxies and then clusters of galaxies all built around these teeny tiny little fluctuations in the density of the very, very early universe. Now, as I said, we have 4% visible matter. The, the, not, the amount of matter that we see, protons, neutrons, electrons, and so on, just isn't enough to explain those slight changes in, in, in density in the early universe. Primordial black holes might, but also something like dark matter, like a wind dark matter, uh, particle dark matter, would, would provide the gravitation needed to form structures in the early universe. And we'll leave it there for now. Look out for part two, which will be out next week, where we learn about the lengths and depths that scientists go to in their search for dark matter and what makes the ideal hunting ground. Paul has written a blog for us where you can learn more about evidence for dark matter and his work hunting for it. Link in the episode description. This episode was produced by Emma Cooper and Rihanna Guzzi. Our theme music is Blanks by Poddington Bear. Luca Morrill has drawn an illustration which is this week's episode art. Link to her work and the illustration in the episode description. This is the InPress podcast. Thank you very much for listening.